Well, hello. Hello, we're back. We are back. I'm John Walker. I'm John Nagel. And this is Oh It's John, the show where we get together and record a show. At the time when we were recording this, it's December 15th. It is. It's six days until the end of fall, and winter is upon us. And uh, John and I just kind of, it was like an emergency situation. We realized that fall was about to be over, and we had not gotten together to talk about our fall jams. And you got to have fall jams. I mean, if a year goes by and you don't talk with a friend about your favorite fall jams, I'm just saying you may as well have not lived that year. Yeah, and so I... I, um... I said, tell me, we got to do this, and we, we put it together on our, our fall, our cardigans, <laughs> and um, got before roaring fire. We waited for a day when the wind was blowing, but not too much, and so there's dry leaves just kind of skittering along darkened gray streets. Like the poster of When Harry Met Sally. Very much like the poster of When Harry Met Sally. In fact, someone asked me to describe this podcast to them <laughs> the other day, and I said, it's basically like the poster <laughs> from When Harry Met yeah, Sally. Exactly, yeah, pretty much. But yes, we're here to talk about fall jams. Uh, we did discuss whether a song that is appropriate for fall is what you can even call a jam or not. And I still don't know for sure if, if we were to say jams are not what you call these fall songs, I would guess maybe we, what's another noun for that? What, what could you call them? They're fall... Reflections. Fall reflections. Oh my gosh, that sounds like a new age album. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I hear fall reflections, I expect to hear chimes. Uh, I agree. Yeah. Or uh, Michael Fields Tubular Bells. Yes. <laughs> that, that's just gonna be the whole album. <laughs> well, that was just uh, you kind of spoiled my list. It was just uh-huh. four different versions of Tubular Bells. Really? Yeah. So yeah, fall reflections, fall jams. Um, what does it mean to you when you think of a particular kind of music uh, that's appropriate for this season? I know in the summer we thought about songs that kept us cool and songs that made us feel cool. But what is a what is a fall song? John, as you know, uh, I'm a very t- certain type of man. <laughs> People, uh, let me put it this way. When people saw my uh, top five artists of for Spotify uh, this year, which came out last week, uh, they said, yep, that's about right. So what were your top five Spotify <laughs> artists for the year? I don't, I don't use Spotify, so I didn't You're get that list. You're going to be shocked. I doubt I will be shocked. <laughs> uh, one, The Replacements. Okay, not shocking. Two, uh, Bruce Springsteen. Not shocking. Three, The Ramones. <laughs> Not shocking. Four, I was actually a little bit surprised. The mm-hmm. Beatles. Oh, wow. That was like, huh. They kind of uh, they kind of squeaked in this year. Well, as they do because they're air. Yeah. Um, and five, The Smiths. Because, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I enjoy pining for things. Mm-hmm. I have horn-rimmed glasses. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, feeling feelings. So pining for things. It's all about pining. When for you things. said that, that really rang a, a bell for me because to to express this idea of what a fall song is, I kind of tapped into what I think of fall as, and fall is a time of wistfulness. Uh, yes. As the light fades in the evening sky, looking out into the distance and and uh, thinking of what might have been, that kind of mood. I, I am a person who who. Uh, wears that mood a lot anyway. I'm oh. a wistful person. Fall is a wistful season. It's very wistful. Yes. You, do, you think of times going by. Yes. As life kind of cycles on through and the year, it, it's like the, all the colors draining out of the trees, the grass is turning brown. All those things are kind of happening, but also uh, school started yeah. during that. And so that was like a period of refreshing your life. But also as you grew older, Everything was a little bit different. The end of summer was a very poignant thing, yeah. and that kind of blends into that fall feeling. And you realize, you know, it's it's going faster. Yes. Like once, 
I don't know about you, but once it hits June, mm-hmm. that's when the year really starts to go. Yeah. Like, boom. Oh, my God. How did that happen? Except for 2018, which the first eight or nine months of the year lasted 600 years. <laughs> I'm just like... <laughs> October was over in a week, and yeah. November was over in a day. Yeah. I saw someone say that online somewhere, and I thought that was pretty accurate. <laughs> and apparently we live in Seattle. Yes, because right. Because it's raining all the time. But thankfully, we got some, what I would call, fall weather this week. I, I, I was agree. beginning to think, when we recorded this, it was going to be so wintry feeling that we would be like big liars. The, but no, actually, I have that autumn feeling uh, surging the, the, through as me. A man, as a man with cerebral palsy, I have to say that... Um, Whenever any, anyone says the word sweater weather to me, mm-hmm. I kind of want to punch them in the face because the cold weather just makes my disability be like, hi, remember me? And I'm like, oh, I'm very aware. Oh, yes. Yeah, you're here. <laughs> like making me all tight and stuff. So that is a reason to really not like the weather getting colder. I no, mean, I think I, we all <laughs> feel like that feeling, though, of like you can't be outside anymore you can't have like that quick jaunt outside without really thinking about it that's another thing that happens in the fall is that you get those that i should have used the warm weather more when it was here i'm going to try to enjoy it so when you have a nice day in the fall there's like the pressure's on yeah so yeah those are the feelings that we had in our in our hearts when we were choosing these songs the idea that maybe we're kind of pining for something the idea that there's a melancholy or a wistfulness to it not not full-on depression if we ever do winter jams I feel like winter is when the, the wheels really fall off the wagon. Oh, and and by the way, I do have one I do have one song that is a certifiable jam. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wistful about it. All right, good. But there's one solid jam. But everything else, nice and wistful. I feel like my list. It's a wistical. Oh, it's a wistical. <laughs> nice. But no, my my list. Um, is that one, two, three? You know, I think all four of mine are kind of uh, low key to to uh, if not dirge like. They're 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 Fantastic. pretty they're well, pretty droopy in a mood sense. So fall is an underrated party season as well. I, I believe. Oh, totally. Fall is when the coolest holiday of the year happens, and that's Halloween because it's a fun holiday that even grown ups can be goofy about, and it's not connected to any family bullshit or any religious bullshit exactly or any real pressure about performing unless you're the sort of person like me who who has no fun dressing up and feels pressure to do something imaginative and i never do and so i kind of stay out of a lot of costume situations i'm I'm that way too but instead i just kind of lay around and then hand candy out well well, i um i uh i follow the ron swanson model of uh i bought one costume it's in my closet and I spent money on it, and that's going to be my last costume <laughs> forever. So I'm going to be like 80 years old and showing up to parties as Maverick from the 1986 masterpiece Top Gun, which is a story about male friendship. <laughs> I was going to say that's an on-brand choice, but the description of Top Gun as a story about male friendship is even more on-brand for you. <laughs> that's what it is. It's about male friendship. I thought you were going to say you wear the costume of an Iron Maiden t-shirt and, you know, dark pants. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, John Turner is John again. That's yeah. not cool. <laughs> I was confusing costume with uniform. Yeah, no, but, no this is my uniform. All right. <laughs> uh, the uniform is my costume. Yes. Because I have an enigma. Yes. Yes, so, you are. You know. As Barton Fink once said, this is my uniform. Exactly. Pointing to his mind. Um, at any rate, we're going to get into these songs. I don't know, um, you said one of yours is a, is a certified banger. Yep. Maybe save that for, for later in the list, because after a few of these, we might start yeah, to yeah, feel our no, mood no, turn. No, 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 you can't, you can't kick it off with the 
but banger. You can't. You gotta be wistful first. Well, why don't you uh, kick us off? What is your uh, first choice? My first choice. Um, we talked about this earlier. Uh, it was a big hit. I think in 1966, it was such a big hit. It was recorded by two artists, but the one I chose was the. I think it, I think it came out first was um, by the Left Bank. It is Walk Away, Renee. What a, what a pretty song. What a lovely chorus. What great so, harmonies. So, I love how those songs from that era, they, they have these really pretty, intricately worked out harmonies, but they also, if you listen closely, it's a couple of guys like kind of really pushing at the at the ends of their limits. Like It sounds like a band, and yet it's got this this artfulness to it. And that harpsichord. Yeah. It's just amazing. But, I, it, but no, the arrangement of that song is incredible. And it's funny, because like, the Four Tops also did it, and they're... Their uh, version is just as good, if not better. But I chose the left bank because it's more wistful. It's more fall-like. Mm-hmm. It's totally autumnal. I just said autumnal for the first time in this episode. Hey! I'm just going to go ahead and say drink every time we say autumnal. Um, well, if we do winter jams, uh, I think the Four Tops version would be more... Perfect. Oh, I see. Be- a song be- for all seasons, because, different versions. Uh, Levi Stubbs really belts out the walk. You know, there's mm-hmm. pain. There's yeah. depre- like there's like it, the wound is fresh. No, the left bank guy definitely sounds like he's ready to just go collapse somewhere. Yeah, you know, this is this is yeah. And he's also really- oh, heave a sigh. Yeah, <laughs> like like Levi Stubbs. Yeah, there's no he. There's no hearing a sigh. He's just like ah, this is ah. I'm not over it. <laughs> Did the lyrics or the story that suggested in it, do you have any kind of personal connection to that? Is Or is it almost a um, sonic connection that I, you have to the well, song? Well, it's a sonic, but I also like kind of rediscovered it when I was going through a um, particularly painful uh, breakup. Yeah. And uh, I was like, oh, yeah, because, you know, it was one of those songs where my parents listened to oldies radio, and I mm-hmm. remember being a kid. Whenever they would play that song, I was thinking, man, they don't play the song enough. Mm-hmm. And now that we live in, you know, the streaming world, like it just randomly came up one day. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, and I love the whole. Um, it came. I mean, the Beatles had already landed and everything, but it, there's this very pre-Beatley wall of sound. Sound going on, mm-hmm. which I love. Which I don't think gets enough, you know. No, it's got that classic production where it's got it's got the string arrangement yeah it's got like so you've got a band and then you've got an orchestra kind of backing them up is what it feels like it's a huge sounding song in that way but it's also just baroque yeah that's a perfect word yep and the chorus man one of the most perfect choruses i've ever heard Like not full on psychedelia, but there's a little bit of that mamas and the papas-y. It's just a really great classic 
song, and you know, it fits perfectly into what I like to call uh, sad bastard music, of which I am a huge fan. So what is the, you know, I've never, I've never sussed out the story of that song. Is, is he saying, we're over, just walk away? Or is he, is he with her, giving her advice? Or is he an impartial observer? I don't know. Let's pull up some lyrics. Oh, it's kind of a, um, it's like a breakup. Uh, just walk away, Renee. You won't see me follow you back home. The empty sidewalks on my block are not the same. You're not to blame. From deep inside the tears that I'm forced to cry. From deep inside the pain that I chose to hide. Just walk away, Renee. You won't see me follow you back home. Yep. And it's... It's like, you know, it's, the, it's a song from the point of view of a stray dog that f- follows you for a couple blocks. Uh-huh. And then lets you go. And it's also very unbrand for a guy like yes. me. You know? <laughs> I'm just saying, I can't help it, guys. You won't see me follow you back home now as the rain beats down upon my weary eyes. For me, it cries. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> the skies are sad for me. Um, that is a, that's almost apocalyptically romantic. (laughs) Again, I bet. (laughs) Your name and mine inside a heart upon a wall still finds a way to haunt me, though they're so small. You know, this like wistful sort of breakup kind of post, like he's obviously finding some strength in the post relationship. And like, you know, like saying, just walk away. He's sort of, it's like he's setting her free from his, his mopiness maybe. I don't know. And it's not super toxic, which is good. No. Right. Which is good. That's that's the whole thing. It's like it's not like I ah. No, he says but, you're not to blame. I won't follow you home. These are all things that an unhealthily obsessed stalker wouldn't no, say. No, not at all. And like you know, we but it, it hurts when a breakup happens. Yeah. He, but he's allowing himself to feel his feelings. More. You know, I like this story of a breakup. So actually, um, my first pick is going to be a song that is is sort of like it's it's a breakup but it's so far in the past it's not even really a breakup it is a it's one of those like looking back on a childhood romance oh nice and in this song the narrator has been sent an invitation to the wedding of a girl that he had like a flirtation with back in the school days okay and he's comparing the at least this is my read of the song he's comparing the procession and the sort of ceremony of the wedding to the harvest festival that they both attended back in school when she first cast what he says, that longing look you gave me, in the middle of the school assembly. So you picture as children, there's a school assembly, yeah. there's a girl casting a look at a guy, and it, it, just, it just melts his heart and stays with him forever. And then now as a grown man, he's going back to her wedding. Uh, so the, that's just a poignant story oh. already. But it's an XTC song uh, called oh my God. Harvest Festival. See the two've been chosen So yeah, the album that that was on was Apple Venus Volume One. So it's like after um, 
Skylarking. Because I don't think I have that one. I think I have everything up until Skylarking. Apple Venus Volume 1 came out in February of 1999. Wow. Um, and it was after they had gone through six or seven years of like contract disputes and leaving their label and trying to get something recorded. They're just such a cinematic band. They really are. And like, they're one of those bands where like I have a bunch of their records. I don't think of, but I don't put them on that often because mm-hmm. you really have to pay attention. Yeah. But then when I listen to you or something like that, mm-hmm. I'm like, wait, why don't I listen to them more? Yeah. It's like, it's very British. It's very pastoral. It's also very, like you said, there's, it's not quite prog rock, but it's got that cinematic wide, wide angle lens kind of approach to Sonics. Me, like they don't go into the studio without a big idea. It reminds me of uh, like Elton John's Tumbleweed Connection mm-hmm. where yeah, everything is huge, and you can see it in your mind, mm-hmm. you know? And I mentioned, like, when we were listening to the song, I said, wow, the, the recorder, which, mm-hmm. you know, we all... Did you play it as a kid? Yeah. Like, that's a very elementary school thing to Yeah, me, and know? it's, like, a little bit out of tune, but it's very much, it sounds like yeah. what it is in the song, which is meant to evoke children playing at, at a school assembly, a song that they've been taught to play. And so it's pretty, but it's also a little bit out of Off tune. Off kilter. Well, yeah. it's funny, because um, a friend of mine... A friend of mine posted like a video of her kids' fifth grade band con- winter band concert, mm-hmm. and like it was just a little bit off kilter. And it's, it's just interesting how you know things evolve and things change. But like that that elementary school concert thing never mm-hmm. does. It's always like kids they're like just learn and they're doing it's they it's so earnest and true but Mm -hmm. also a little bit off you're never more into it than when you're that age like it's not winter unless i hear a group of 10 year olds performing an off-kilter rendition of old saint nick right you know like (laughs) like and i'm an i'm a notorious grinch Mm -hmm. but i can't be yeah cynical about that well i mean you can be cynical about almost everything else about christmas but when you see a bunch of kids that are into it yeah it's kind of like okay yeah this is this is for real but also in this song the way that he 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 paints that image of the the romance from your past or just that feeling even if it wasn't a romance just somebody that gave you that look one time it doesn't even have to be a romance yeah at, at, at an assembly a girl can give you a look that sticks with you for decades you don't even have to speak to her again at that age <laughs> yeah it's like that yeah, it's like yeah, you just like that look becomes something that defines how you how you sort of approach it after that, right? Mm-hmm. It's like well, I know that I got that look from that person at that time, so <laughs> I kind of feel good. But also just the sort of the part in the song where he says, "I wish you well." It's like the song is kind of devoid of any real angst over this but you sense there's a, that wistfulness about just years gone by because in in the song the story is they passed out of each other's lives as children and you know this this was obviously in the days before social media uh so in other words if someone passed out of your life if you didn't have their address you might you don't know where they ended up there's no telling so to, to get that invitation in the mail to their wedding i do think that would be a kind of like heart-stopping moment for me to have those memories flood back yeah, in, in well, that context and it's like oh but what could have happened right you know
lovely song by, like... And I'm glad you mentioned the Britishness, because, you know, one of the things I really always dug about XTC was they're so British. Mm -hmm. And just a little detail of the headmaster. Yeah. Like, that's that's not American. Like... So well, even the Harvest Festival, just that phrase right there, like to us, we have like Thanksgiving, we have Halloween, but we don't have this sort of ritualistic thing yeah. that, that goes back and it's like, it's got pagan, pre-Christian stuff swirled in with it. Yeah, like certain things are universal, but then the, those the, the little details like that make it hyper-specific, which yeah. is why I always enjoyed, which is why XTC is such an interesting band. Mm-hmm. And I think... It rewards you for paying attention. Mm-hmm. And, and, oh, and now I'm all wistful and stuff. <laughs> well, uh, what's your next selection? Is it going to push us further inside ourselves, or is it going to bring us out I don't know. And this, one, this one's going to seem a little, a little ridiculous, but... <laughs> um, we need a little ridiculousness at this point. Well, we're recording, um, as always, from lovely uh, stately Toxic Manor in Towson, Maryland. But, John, did you know... That I have stately class manor that's also a castle. Oh, no. Well, I do. Tell me more about this castle and tell me why we aren't recording there. Well, because uh, I couldn't get airfare together in time. Oh, okay. But I do... Um, I thought you were going to say ghosts. You know, there's a big rolling fireplace. One of those fireplaces that you could, like, walk into? Yeah, uh-huh. Oh, wow. And um, I pour myself some mulled wine and I put on a puppy shirt. And I listen to this ridiculous but great song. Ingvay Malmsteen. <laughs> Icarus Dream Sweet. Malmstein, your virtuosity is showing. What a great pompous sound. What, what all our songs have had so far was utter sincerity. He means it. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no irony. Oh, no, there's not. He's like, this is my thing that I do. This is my thing that I do. And, damn it. Yeah, it's just, it's great. I, I unapologetically love him, even though he is so uncool. He makes Rush look like Wu-Tang. I think that somehow in 2018, whatever's uncool about a guy like that, because I know what you mean, with that style of playing, the thoughtful shredder kind of guy, you know, like there was that guy who came along in the 80s. I think Yngwie Malmsteen may have been one of the first. Joe Satriani, Steve Steve Vai. Those guys all sort of fit into that mold of these guys who wanted to do these cosmic symphonies all based around guitar we can kind of choke to death on irony if we're not careful you know and you hear something like that doesn't mean you have to like it but that guy's not fucking around no you know he's, he's not being like, silly and, and the fact that it's an eight and a half minute song and, about and it's based on an adagio for strings that kind of thing is very high-minded and yet <laughs> the guys i knew that loved this shit like back in high school were not high-minded about it at I, all like i wonder how many people were turned on to Bach or turned on to classical music through this kind of thing. And you're raising your hand. This guy, (laughs) because I was like, oh, classical music is lame. And then the English came along and was like, oh, yeah? I'm going to play the fucking Marshall Sack, okay? (laughs) Well, if the song's got one of those great moments, that's exactly that, where it quiets down and it becomes kind of acoustic-y and ruminative, and you could believe you were hearing sort of a, a different genre of music. I feel like this is something that heavy music does a lot. They, they have a pretty section, uh-huh. and then the drums kick back in. 
Mm-hmm. It's like the whole band is going, we fooled you. You thought we were lame, but we're not lame. Look, we're rocking I out. I have seen Yngwie in person, mm-hmm. and I was in the front row. Well, surely you were because this happened at your castle, right? It was yes. a private performance. Yes. Just to see it in person, yeah. him shred like that, mm-hmm. it's just like, how are you doing that? Yeah. Also, <laughs> I met him before the show, and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, in Baltimore, on Pulaski Highway, the man was wearing a puffy shirt and leather pants and gold rings on all his fingers. He lived the gimmick, John. Yeah. I admire that. I do, too. I'm like, he's like, I'm this guy... 24 hours a day. He doesn't want you to ever see him from like a, a distance and wonder if that's Ingve Malmsteen. He wants you to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. And he, he, go, he comes up and he's like, um, and he, he's like, how, how are you, sir? I'm like, I'm, gu- I'm good, Mr. Malmsteen. He's like, very good. We shall be rocking you and I. <laughs> it was, you know, he's, re- he, it's just awesome. I just looked at the album that this is on on Wikipedia and interesting bit on the personnel. Do you know the interesting trivia of the the deep in the credits personnel for this album? Engineering? No. Lester Claypool. Whoa. Yeah. Like there can't be another that can't be like Whoa. Right? I mean that in eighty four it's gotta be Les Claypool would have been the right age to be an engineer. (laughs) You know what I mean? To be hanging around a studio. That blows my mind. I mean unless there's another Lester Claypool in music. I don't (laughs) I want I want the Ingve private store right now. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sad. Like I mean I want more Ingve tours in general. Well now you know that Les Claypool, if you ever did meet him, he's got Ingve stories. The the funny part is like everybody has Ingve stories. He's just a guy. You see him riding around on a dragon, you know, you usually you get to know that guy. Well, since that was, uh, that's an eight and a half minute song, I'll actually play my longest song. It's my next I'm so, I didn't realize it was eight and a half minutes. No, I, I mean, I think that's that's average length for an Yngwie song. Uh, yeah, I mean, but I, actually, it's like short for an Yngwie tune. Normally, it's like 17 minutes. Like, this, oh. little, this little ditty. And, and yet, yet, I'm like, oh, F the Grateful Dead. It yeah. like, you know. Yeah. I guess it just depends how you like your noodling. Uh, but this song is over six minutes long, and this actually connects back a little bit to that wistful romance uh, that we've been talking about. It's a song about acceptance and about oh, letting go, so and about having one last night with someone who you know you're never gonna see again. Uh, it's an Al Green song called For the Good Times. Always. But life goes on. And this world keeps on turning, yeah. Let's just be glad we had this time to spend together. Somehow I feel like if I was in a relationship that was ending, and I wanted one last roll in the hay. It wouldn't come out <laughs> quite so irresistibly. He's my favorite soul <laughs> singer ever. Lay your head upon my 
Fire of a southern soul singer, but he's smooth, like, because at the same time, like, it's very restrained. The early 70s, and my mom would disagree, it's my favorite soul period, because mm-hmm. on one hand, you had the southern stacks, high records thing, which Al Green was a part of, but you also had the very produced, slick. Philly yeah. thing going on. And um, Al Green to me is like this perfect amalgam between the two. Like he's got the fire of a, you know, got Southern Solomon Burke thing. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's that gospel like yeah. backdrop. Even on songs you've heard a million times where, where like you've heard I'm so tired of being alone a million times or mm-hmm. Let's sit together and it's just like, oh, you just forget about it because like, he's so good. Yeah. And what he does, it's just mastery, mm-hmm. you know? Well, what's interesting about that song, For the Good Times, is it's, got, it's a country song. It was written by Chris Christopherson, and it was first uh, sung uh, by Bill Nash in 1968, and then Chris Christopherson recorded a version of it in, I believe, 1970? Yeah, 1970. And also in 1970, Ray Price, another country guy, went to number one with it. And then it was 72 when Al Green put out his version of it. So it was out there as a successful, many times over covered and performed and interpreted country song by the time Al Green comes in. And I listened to the Ray Price version opposite this today just to kind of decide like, hey, what if I actually love the original Mm -hmm. version? And it's great. Upon my pillow you don't feel the emotion in the song quite as much as you feel in Al Green's version. And the other thing about Al Green's version of this song is the narrator seems to be sincere, and yet it's totally the song of a guy who's putting the moves on somebody. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's almost like you put on this song so that you can seem like the guy who's full of acceptance and remorse and just wants to feel something just one last time. But in actuality, it's like, I know what I'm doing if I'm putting on the Al Green. I mean... Come on. Right. <laughs> he made, well, I, mean, I felt like I was putting the moves on you just listening I mean, to this song Sean, with you. If you want it, I, I... I know. We're alone in an apartment. No, one, no mean, one's going to be stopping by for a yeah, while. <laughs> I mean... Sorry, Nick. You put it out great. But I... It's... it's I didn't know that was a cover, but... To me, that's part of Al Green's genius that no one ever talks about. Because he also covered, you know... Light My Fire, mm-hmm. and a bunch of other, you know, songs from outside the soul genre and made them his own. And right. I think that's also something that um, people in today's uh, post-Beatles, post-Dylan world don't really understand is that back in the day, people were just professional songwriters and that's what they did. Yeah. And like, the the job of the singer was to make it their own. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And when people talk about Al Green, they rarely ever talk about his skill as an interpreter, which is just second to none. Right. I mean, he's one of my, easily my top five of interpreters of song. Mm-hmm. 
like where I never need to hear the doors light my fire again, but his light my fire. I was just blown away. I think it's, I often go to sleep with MTV Classic on, and the first thing I woke up to this morning was, um, and I'm a poptimist by nature. I'm not a pop sucks guy, yeah. but, uh, I never liked Mariah Carey. Mm-hmm. I never will like Mariah Carey because she does that extraneous singing mm-hmm. that is just so distracting. It's not like a connected to any emotion. No, it's just like a it's just a show off move. Look what I can do with this thing, and the, I realize it's hypocritical of me considering me just listening to Amy and Mom sing. <laughs> but <laughs> no, but my whole issue with her is like. Al Green was doing some extraneous singing, but I never thought about it. No, it feels it, like it's connected to real it human fit emotions. Within versus the Mariah Carey song, all I can think about was like, stop with the pyrotechnics. Yeah. Yeah, there's an emotional storyline in the song, and you can sense that for him to perform a song and put on an album, he had to kind of go through that experience. It's not just him standing there at a music stand, like just belting the latest hits or whatever. Well, very much like. Very much like um, Elvis or Sinatra or Aretha, like he had to read the lyrics and like think about them. Like, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. Like, what does this mean? And that's the mark of a great singer to me. Like, you know, what does this song really mean? How can I get to the emotional core of it? Mm-hmm. And then by bringing my own personal feelings to it. How can I make it universal to everyone? Yeah. And it's just, he's, he's great. And underrated, by the way. Yeah. I mean, especially nowadays. I feel like the Let's Stay Together being on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack yes. was kind of like a little pop of people appreciating Al Green. Well, I got to say, like, if, he, if you guys are listening to this and you've never heard Al Green, um, some artists, you know, you're like, you're picking an album from the catalog or something. Mm-hmm. And Al Green has many awesome albums in his catalog, but I will say this. To get started with Al Green, you can't do any better than Al Green's greatest hits from, mm-hmm. I think, 1975. It's got everything, and it's the perfect introduction. So, you know, yeah. give it a shot. Yeah, good the show. early greatest hits collection from one of those artists is good because it will stop before a certain kind of 80s production starts creeping and in also, on even the best and artists. And also, they're not too long. Yeah. You know? Right. Like, it's just like, this is why. And then they're usually really well, you know, curated. So, that's, you know, Al Green, everyone. He's yes. great. Check him out. This young upstart Al Green that we've discovered. He's also a minister. <laughs> yes. We won't, we won't hold that and against him. No, we won't. And that story, by the way, is insane so that might be a future podcast (laughs) Um, you know this podcast has threatened to turn into a joan crawford podcast so if it became an al green podcast that'd be fun (laughs) the al green and joan crawford podcast (laughs) wow (laughs) oh it's john a podcast for fans of joan crawford and al green (laughs) bring them together (laughs) yeah well uh what's your next selection well speaking of insane (laughs) were we uh, John, um, this is my banger. Because the fall, for all of its wistfulness and uh, drinking mulled wine in huge castles that I own and um, walking in the fall leaves, you, get, you, got, you got Halloween, you got Friendsgiving, you got parties to go to. Yes, you do. 
And this get out there. This song is a goddamn banger, and it, and it's just great. And not enough people. A lot of people know him for one catchphrase from one show, but he was so much more than that. Rick James, busting out. James, you're right. People just think of Rick James as the Dave Chappelle sketch. And even I, when you were saying Rick James, I had to stop myself from thinking, Rick James, bitch. You know, like, that's just that's just the way we, we phrase it. And it's not fair. Because, dude, that song rules. It's funky and, like... I mean, it is. It's serious funk. Yes. Busting out <laughs> some serious funk, John. It's just so good. Yeah. I, I love it. Um, now, is that a particular song of yours? Are you pretty well acquainted with, with Rick James well, <laughs> in general? Is he, a, is he one of your favorites? It's funny because um, as, a, as a young lad, I, was a, I have this meme going that, my, that I did on Facebook a little while back that I might need to start revive on the Instagram that all the kids are doing called Hilariously Inappropriate Albums Dad Let 14-Year-Old John Buy. <laughs> and um, I was a big fan of Behind the Music, as yeah. a 14-year-old lad, because, you know, when, we, when did I learn more than music? Tales about debauchery. Mm-hmm. And the Rick James episode was great. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'm going to buy that Street Songs record. And I did. Mm-hmm. And my dad let me purchase it, even though the album, the back of the album, has him with two hookers. Your dad with two hookers? <laughs> song but busting out every bit is good yeah is it from the same same era same mm, album it's like the second like he made like three albums in one year at one point mm-hmm. which I think we also need to talk about John like in the 70s people just cranked out albums yeah and then people were like well why, why did they burn out well because <laughs> they made three albums in one year right like you know <laughs> that's a lot of albums like nowadays, they don't even let major artists on major labels do that. Like they don't no. want them to get in the way of their own cycle of. You put out an album, you put out two or three big singles from that album. The artists back then would be knocking themselves off the chart. Yeah. Plus, I love a dude that wears like leather jumpsuits with thigh high boots mm-hmm. and capes. And it's just yeah. like, yep, this is what we're doing. Glitter and stuff. Yeah. So. Didn't he? have a sex slave or something like that <laughs> no he's a t- he's a terrible person and a, cr- <laughs> and a crazy person and i'm not saying i'm gonna like yeah. i'm not saying he's a saint okay <laughs> he, he he would not he, like 
Look, I'm completely aware of his foibles. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not judging him on his foibles. I'm judging him on the serious fun. On the seriousness of his funk. (laughs) (laughs) Was the funk serious, John? Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. How would you describe this funk, John? Jocular? (laughs) Whimsical? (laughs) Yeah. Erratic? Or serious? Serious. Serious funk. All Um, right. It goes on the playlist. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's a great party song. Mm -hmm. I think, but I think musically, and that's the cool thing about this show, like, it made me realize. Oh, like there's a whole genre we forget about. Yeah. That was once beyond huge. Mm hmm. And maybe it's time to dust them off and, you know. Because, what do you think about Rick James, John? Like, I mean, I know the high points, but I've always liked his music. So, yeah, I mean, I've I've never sat down and listened to a Rick James album, though. So, that's a strange thing to realize. Yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, he's got like eight, like 18. But the funny part is, like, and also, I think he gets eclipsed by Prince, who, you know, came out at the same time, and, you know, it's Prince. Yeah. So, like, everyone... It's hard not to be eclipsed by Prince. Everyone, everyone on Earth is going to be destroyed by Prince. I just think he needs a reappraisal, because... Um, We're talking about Rick James now. Yes, he does. Yeah. Well, and Prince is, like, Prince... Yeah, Prince doesn't need a reappraisal. No, he doesn't. He's great. Yeah, he's royalty. But the Prince adjacent people, mm-hmm. Rick James, the time... Um. Even George Clinton, Bootsy Collins, like they all need, yeah. you know, we need to think about because like, it's a whole genre that gets, I think because it came out right before hip hop, and you, so we tend to forget. Yeah. So, Rick James, horrible person. Serious funk. Serious funkster. <laughs> um. Yeah, and also thigh high boots. Great. Yeah. Um. And also weirdly, he was in a band with Neil Young. Oh, he was. Mm-hmm. That's weirder than Les Claypool being an engineer on the first Ingve <laughs> Malmsteen album, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, they were. I mean, he uh, escaped the Canada to avoid the to oh. went, went AWOL from the Navy and uh, went to Canada and hooked up with Neil Young, and then they got signed. And then I had a falling out with their manager, and the manager ratted him out. Oh, okay. And that's how the Minor Birds didn't become a thing. The what? They they were called the minor birds, which I think would be awesome if like that's how we know Neil Young. And it's like, oh, he was Rick James. So which <laughs> the two of them together. It's like, wait, what? That is crazy <laughs> to picture. Imagine that career. You know, or at least how different those artists would seem to us if somehow that partnership had stayed current or stayed constant. What I'm saying is I want Neil Young in thigh high boots. I was going to say Rick James is the only guy on this list today who's had thigh-high boots. But now that thought has been eclipsed by the image of Neil Young in thigh-high boots. Yeah. I mean, that'd be, that'd be amazing, right? Yeah. I'd be able to see that. He might be wearing them already under his jeans and we just don't know. Please do. He seems kind of stiff-legged. Yeah. This could be thigh-high boots under there. Um, but, <clears throat> but yeah, I just think it's a great song and yes. a great record. And, you know, and part of the whole thing is like we're trying to expose you mm-hmm. to things you the listeners to things you might not have heard before if you were going to put these songs on a playlist i would recommend maybe put on the rick james first and then the al green later exactly yes like it's the come down rick james is now al green is later yeah because and the al, but al green's on a whole other level yeah so well, all right i'm i'm gonna say my next selection is my most on the nose it's a song that i debated whether including it was just too easy 
because uh, it's got the word autumn right there in the title. But I, I, once I thought about it, I just I can't get away from the kinks, and I really can't think of oh. a better song, period, than Autumn Almanac. Nope. But for this season, everything that it evokes, everything that it describes, we were talking about XTC's sort of resolute Britishness. I think this era of the kinks, when they were in the the late 60s, when they had sort of realized they weren't going to be the Stones and realized they weren't going to be the Beatles, and they went off to make these songs and these albums that were very much about British life that were almost like not even reaching out to a massive universal audience. But um, this song, Autumn Almanac, that is totally about, like, just, uh, it's a tone poem about autumn in a small British town uh, and just the way people behave and, you know, getting together for drinks on Friday night and the leaves blowing in the wind and a, a little caterpillar crawling out. Such pastoral images. And this song is just like a great uh, vignette about, about that feeling and about that situation particularly. From the I think the kinks are maybe the best example of, of what I refer to as the sort of like supposedly underrated thing. If everybody who mentions the kinks talks about how underrated they are, then maybe they're not as underrated as we all think they are. But it is somehow still strange to me that they are still somehow an underground band. Like compared to the Beatles, compared to the Stones, compared to the Who, there's something underground about them in that the songs that everyone knows the best, you know, You Really Got Me, uh, Lola, all day and all the night. All day and all the night. Those songs are are great songs, but they are not representative of the full spectrum. Lola might be a little bit closer to sort of what they were really about, but that whole period of like sitting back and enjoying their Englishness and celebrating their Englishness when other bands of their era were reaching out for this world audience, the fact that they would write a song that includes all these references to very British things. Um, uh, uh, tea and toasted buttered currant buns can't compensate for lack of sun because the summer's all gone. You know, I mean, they're singing about something we can all relate to, but when they talk about football on Saturday and roast, roast beef on I mean, Sunday... That's peak British, dude. That's peak British, but it's also something we can all kind of relate to some version of that. You know, football, and of course they're talking about soccer, but still, football on Saturday, that sounds like fall to me, too. I mean, the most poignant emotional statement in the song is a guy saying, this is my street and I'm never going to leave it and I'm always going to stay here if I live to be 99 because all the people I meet seem to come from my street, and I can't get away because it's calling me, come on home. That's a person whose world is very small, and yet it feels like they're fully connected to their community and to people around and the experience. I love that idea that you can stay in your small town and kind of see the world because, because you come to know a place so well. Yeah. And the way those guys write about those those that their upbringing, those British guys, when they write about it, it feels like it's just connected to something so old that's been around for so long. And it's um, you know, and I, it's a, you know what they really remind me of, um, a, a later band, Pulp. 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. They were like pulp before pulp because pulp, um, even more even more so than Blur and Oasis, the other big two Britpop bands. Mm-hmm. Like they like Jarvis Cocker. There's he's full British all the time. Mm-hmm. Like common people is about Britain, and the Kings are the same way. Yeah. Like they weren't trying to be. Any, and I think we Americans get so. Well, we can't relate to another country. Like, well, we're so used to people reaching out and relating to Americanness as this kind of bland, global yeah. point of view, and we don't realize how much that, like, that default setting is like is something that we just we just devour. Yeah. And then you hear about yeah any other culture, any other place. You're right. You get a little flavor of it, and you realize oh yeah there there is something different. Like especially England, you would think that those traditions would be very close to our own, and in many ways they are. <laughs> but but there is something different about. But there's it. like the little like. Like with the XTC, like with the XTC song, the little changes. Mm-hmm. Like not a principal, a headmaster. Yeah. Not a fall festival, harvest. Like mm-hmm. the little word changes. It's like, oh no, this is where we live, and even though it's universal, mm-hmm. it's still very, you know. I I I love, and but I get why. I kind of get why the Kinks ever became the Who or the Beatles. Oh, sure. I think they get why. I think them making music like this was them embracing why they weren't going to be that. Because, like, you know, as a great man once said, his name is Wayne Campbell, uh, Led Zeppelin didn't write write tunes that everyone liked. They left that to the Bee Gees. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think there's a thing for a hyper-specific idiosyncratic writing mm-hmm. and but and also it makes it more special because if you're one of the people that gets that yeah it makes you feel ah right like there's a little bit of exclusivity like as i mentioned when i was talking about my top five for spotify i was surprised when the beatles were in my top five but then i wanted them because they're like air yeah everyone knows them mm-hmm. whereas the kinks when you meet a Kinks fan, you're like, oh. Right. You're really saying something. Like, you're not saying anything about yourself when you say you like the Beatles. Right. As much as I love them, I know exactly what you mean. I think of the Beatles and Star Wars and things like that as like, for some reason, I love the same shit that everybody else loves. Like, normally my tastes take me in different directions. Yeah. But when it comes to these things, I'm a basic bitch, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and and Beatles, a- as great as they are... Is basic bitch music. It's so basic. Mm-hmm. I mean, because we're, as we should be, we're just... Well, you can't... Well, part of it is you can't help but be drawn to something that is good in that way. But I do think if you're looking around at, like, their contemporaries, it's interesting to think about the fact that... I mean, the Beatles wrote some pretty affecting lyrics and some songs that, that have characters in them and that sort of thing, but I don't know that they have the sort of history of writing lyrics that hold up in the same way that, say, Ray Davies does. However, Ray Davies' lyrics are a little bit like, they're cerebral, they're a little bit, I mean, not all throughout his career, but definitely in this period. They're, they are character studies. They are sort of like little little vignettes and short stories. So it suffers a little bit that immediacy that you get out of a big, like a song like Let It Be, for instance, from the Beatles, like doesn't have the specificity that a kink song from that same era might have had. However, it, it grabs you... And doesn't let go. Whereas with the kink song, maybe you do have to like listen a little more closely and, and like suss it out more to catch the sort of emotional heft of it. Like with XTC, they reward you for the details. Mm-hmm. 
which, you know, some people just don't have patience for. And I'm not saying, like, that makes us cooler than everyone else, although it, it might. <laughs> but, like, you know, when you really get the kinks, like, it takes a while. But once it hits you, it's special. Ray Davies was one of the first guys to write these lyrics that were character studies that had this sort of pointedness to it, like the song A Well-Respected Man About Town or Dedicated Follower of Fashion. It was interesting to see how much he was diving into these very specific, but, as you've mentioned, very specific lyrical ideas. Like little short stories. Yeah. Which I think in the 70s people got more used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the, they, they were really... An outlier. And, but I just think that there's certain bands that like, like Robbie Williams or someone like that where like they're just so British mm-hmm. and they can't help but be British all the time. Mm-hmm. And we just can't, for whatever reason, make that leap. Like you're not going to be that, there's something limiting about your hit potential in America if you have that. Yeah. If you're dripping with Britishness in that way. Yeah, like Lily Allen, the same, you know what I mean? Like, and, and it's like, if you like these artists, it makes you like them more because of that specificity, it, but you're right. There's a reason, like, like, you can't sit there and say, you almost can't ask the question, why didn't the kinks ever become so big? Because it's kind of written all over the way that yeah. they followed their impulses and the sort of stuff they were making. And, and, and when granted, when they were making the music that I liked the best was probably when they were steering the furthest away from the charts in America. And honestly, like, it probably hurt them too that when they were making records, like, pop radio was like, it's got to be three minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, the beat, do what did he did he dum did he do. Mm-hmm. Like, immediacy, immediacy, because we got to, boom. Like, yeah. we don't have time for, you know, Sunday Rosa on Sunday because it's not we need the immediacy we need that's why we need Herman's we don't have time for your slow cooker pop no we don't like and we need flash fry pop we do (laughs) and um yeah but they're a great band though yeah I mean they're fantastic yeah definitely one of my favorites and I've gone through phases where I've gotten so into them I realize they're one of those bands where there really is a period like the late 60s into the early 70s there's several albums in that range of theirs that that are in my always in the running for my favorite album of all time you know but I don't know like later than that and earlier than that as much as I like that stuff I definitely have like a chosen era, but but this song is from '67. It's right in the middle of that era where they, like I said, they were somehow seemingly aware that the real juice for them was going to be retreating from that global blandness and going like really, really pushing that Britishness forth. But my dad, who's a very knowledgeable '60s pop guy, has like no frame of reference for the Kinks mm-hmm. outside of Lola and. You really got me all day, all the night. Like, that's just the way it was. You know what I mean? So it's, I don't know. I mean, I think something else from one of their albums just, just, be, just became gold. That's nuts. It's funny that well, you can have a huge influential career and never quite bubble over to whatever that critical mass is that says, okay, now you're being mentioned this way. And now they're playing the songs that are actually the best and not just the earliest hits. Like, the fact that you turn on the radio, the song you're going to hear is going to be, you really got me or all day and all the night. Great songs, but just scratching the surface of what they really did. And I, I have to be, can I be honest for a second? Yeah. You might not like me after this. Oh, what? <laughs> 
I've always preferred Van Halen's. Oh, you really, you really got, got me. me? Yeah. Like, Dave sells it. Mm-hmm. Like, I really think he's going to get laid. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's my whole... Last thing when Dave covers the song, I'm like, yep, that guy, it's going to happen for him. Mm-hmm. Well, see, to me, the Van Halen version sounds kind of show-off-y, but I don't, I don't hear actually as much of the legitimate libido in it as, as I hear in Ray Davies' sort of really? insinuating delivery. Yeah, but I do think Diamond Dave, there's, you can't deny that when Diamond Dave is singing a song, it's like he's putting something into it that no one else could possibly <laughs> I mean, put I'm into just, it. I'm just going to say this. Like, when I was 14... I looked at David Lee Roth and I said, and that guy has it all figured out. <laughs> and at 33, I looked at David Lee Roth and I'm like, that guy has it all figured out. So Maybe you haven't seen the clip of him um, doing the bluegrass version of, uh, of Jump. Jump. He yes. still has it all figured out. I'm sorry. He believes I in don't himself. know that he has anything figured out in that clip. <laughs> he seems like he doesn't know what to do with his hands or his legs. But, you know, it's when people ask me, like, if you were able-bodied, what would the two things you would do be? Mm-hmm. One would be to high-five someone like I was in the Millie Vanilli video for Blame It on the Rain. <laughs> and two would be to jump off a drum riser like David Lee Roth. <laughs> like, after that, I'd be like, okay, I've done everything. That, why else do I need to walk? I've done both <laughs> cool things. <laughs> You remember that move, right? Where they ran at each other and high-fived? Oh, yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. I also remember a big... There's a chest bump. Yeah. Um, yes. That, too. Well, what is your last selection? Well, my last selection is Wistful, um, but it's but it's more hope, hopeful. Um, from the But it's a great song, and I think it's underrated, and it's uh, from the 1981 hit film Arthur. Christopher Cross, Arthur's theme, the best that you can do once in your life you find her someone who turns your heart around and next thing you know you're closing down the town wake up and it's still with you even though you left your way across town wondering to Sings like an angel, that Christopher Cross. <laughs> it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like it's so easy. easy. This is one of those songs that you hear and it's piped in. You can view it as Muzak almost, but it's better constructed than you might think if you were just going to blow it off as cheesy pop. So my parents got tickets to see a Beatles tribute thing. Um, and the band that opened for them was a quote-unquote yacht rock band. And I'm really aging myself here, but they, um... And, like, so they played, you know, that song by Christopher Cross. They played Hollow Notes. They played Kenny Loggins. They played Alan Parsons Project. And what really struck me while I was watching those dudes play those songs and play them perfectly, those songs are really hard to play. Like, they're musically intricate. And... Dude, the hook, the hook in that song, it's perfect. It won the Oscar for a reason. I can't hate that. I can't hate a great melody. And yeah, 
Sings like an angel. Yes. <laughs> and just in case you were wondering if it's 1981, it's got that super smooth saxophone oh, to- action in the no, middle. No, it totally does. So yeah, the song obviously mentions Arthur by name in the lyric. Yeah. So it, it was written for the movie, mm-hmm. I'm guessing. Did did he do other music for the movie? Was this like do you, what else I, do you know about Christopher Cross? Well, he had the number one album of 1980 mm-hmm. with Sailing and won, okay. won like all the Grammys. Right. And he, but he was one of those dudes that was like killed by MTV because mm-hmm. he's not a pretty man. No, he's a very babyish face <laughs> guy, and he's, he's got like he's got like a wispy chin strap beard. And he's he's. He's one of those dudes that when he was 25, like he was 38. Especially back then, there was a lot of that. Yeah. A lot of guys and then, like, who were like 20 in 1978 looked 45. Like the dudes in Toto mm-hmm. don't look what the age they were. I mean, there's a difference between your journeys and your REO speed wagons and your foreigners and your Christopher Crosses and your Totos. They all look like men. Look, I love this song. I love Christopher Cross. Mm-hmm. It's very mellow, very... But he's not a cool-looking dude. No, he's not. But I love this song. I really do. Is there a particular reason, uh, as far as the wistfulness of it and the autumnal quality of it, is there a particular reason why you might attach it to this season? Or is it more just a well, tone it's just, thing? It's just like, there's with versus winter, I feel like fall has a little bit more possibility. You know? Because it's like, the, summer, the summer's over, but like... The year's not over, and stuff still might be able to happen in between the seasons, you know? Something could... Like, in all the the romantic comedies, John, they all take place in the fall. We do still think of that time of year as that that first day of school. There is something new about the fall, even though it is technically when things are getting old and, and falling apart and getting ready for the winter. As Tom Hanks says in the 1998 film You've Got Mail... Don't you love New York in the fall? It just makes you want to buy school supplies. Well, you said before you played that song that it was sort of wistful, but in a hopeful way. Yeah. My last song of this episode is going to send us off in a mood that is the opposite. And yet, I think in this song, you can find a sort of trenchant strength of the human spirit. This song is so singular, and it has such a mood to it, and it's such a powerful mood, and it's such a lovely song. I never get tired of it. It's another one like the, uh, the Al Green song that has been... You know, it was written and covered and performed by different people, but the version of this song that, that really is a classic, written by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, oh. with an orchestral arrangement by Randy Newman. This version is uh, by Peggy Lee, and it's the most famous version of the song, but it's just a great song no matter who does it. I know what it is. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? I remember when I was a little girl, our house caught on fire. I'll never forget the look on my father's face as he gathered me up in his arms and raced to the burning building out of the pavement. And I stood there, shivering in my pajamas, and watched the whole world go up in flames. And when it was all over, I said to myself, is that all there is to a fire? 
Man, that song kills me. My heart's breaking. <laughs> I'm almost surprised that that song was written when it was and made when it was because it to me feels like such a modern, unflinching take on this kind of existential malaise that what I just don't... What year is that? Uh, the song was written... Because it was... Neighbor and Stoller probably like, what, what, late 50s or late 60s? You know, it's, it's ambiguous when they wrote it. It was just in the 60s. Her version... Uh, Peggy Lee's version was was recorded in 1969, but there were other versions before that. What a goddamn voice! Yeah, great voice, great song. It guts you in a way, but it also I don't know that that, that whole thing about let's break out the booze and have a ball. I, I think that's the ultimate feeling the song has. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friend. I know what you must be saying to yourselves. If that's the way she feels about it, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh no, not me. I'm not ready for that final disappointment. Because I know, just as well as I'm standing here talking to you, that when that final moment comes and I'm breathing my last breath, I'll be saying to myself, Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. This whole notion of being unimpressed with watching your house burn down, being unimpressed with the circus, being unimpressed with love, and then fully expecting that you're gonna be unimpressed with death. Because I totally feel it in my bones at times. And definitely around this time of the year, especially when the, you know, the, the, the days end a little earlier, yeah. and you're getting into that, you're touching on that kind of winter feeling where I always find Christmas time and winter is, it's like there's something kind of spooky and lonely about it. Oh, dude, it's... it's and I feel like this song, even though I'm, I'm casting it as an autumnal song, it's that perfect kind of kickoff into that feeling of you're in the world, but you're kind of not of this world. You're kind of observing it. You're kind of standing yeah. a little bit on the outside of it. And again, I think the recurring one of the recurring themes of this episode is uh, interpretation. And what interpret... Like, what? Did, mm -hmm. she, did she nail it? Or what? I mean, I don't know about these other versions. I did want to maybe dig them up and see who, if anybody else quite brought that quality to it. But what I think is really a big part of it as well, and I, knowing his work later, it makes perfect sense, but you can hear it. The Randy Newman-ness of that oh, arrangement totally. is also a huge part of it. And his whole thing is that kind of mordant wit, kind of gallows yeah. humor sort of stuff. So I feel like he puts all of that into that arrangement. And obviously at a pretty young age, a pretty early stage in his career, I don't know that I'll ever get over that song. Every time I hear it, it hits me in that same place. And it takes me to that same little mood because it's just, it's just so unusual that something was made in a different time when you felt like, I mean, it's silly to feel this way, but you felt like maybe people didn't express these, for lack of a better term, kind of depressive thoughts. There's this gray blanket hanging over everything that this woman encounters. And yet that's all of us on a certain level. I remember I remember playing Sinatra's um, In the Wee Small Hours for a friend, mm -hmm. which was made in 1955, and yeah. he could not believe how tonally in sync it was, and just how, you know, because he was like, well, Sinatra didn't write his own songs. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, okay, but do you, do you want to hear anyone else sing this? Right. Like... Do you know what he was going through at the time? Like, <laughs> he brought 
Like, those singers, they had to really... They didn't write it. Yeah. So they had to bring their own story. Right. And that's what makes me even more fascinating. I'm, now I'm wrecked, John. <laughs> and, um... Well, do you want to go buy some school supplies? <laughs> I, I guess. Somebody's probably got them marked down somewhere. Um, and Libra and Solar, dude. They, they know how to write a goddamn song. Well, that brings us to the end of our, of our autumnal jams. Until Rick James and Peggy Lee announce their collaboration... Um, I guess this is it for me and John here. If you want to follow me, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Gianni W. That's G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. And um, heck, why not uh, try my movie podcast that I do with my friend Steve Ritter and uh, Ronald James. That would be Movie Schmovie. You can Ronald find James it. is the funniest dude. He's the best. Uh, you can find that at movieshmovie.com. Where can they find you, John? They can find me at... Oh, by the way, kids, I'm on the Instagram now. Yeah. Uh, Instagram.com at jnagle1985 and medium.com at jnagle4. Uh, you know, I, I post pictures of my t-shirts. <laughs> if you want to see what kind of t-shirts this guy has. I have a lot of t-shirts. So follow me there and um, hopefully I'll be doing some stand-up soon. So keep your eyes peeled or sit down. All right. Well, thank you, John. Thank you, John. Just walk away.